It's good to be with you this morning. I am Chad Ashby, a member here at Redeemer, and I want to say uh, thank you to Matt for the opportunity to preach this morning. And during this season of ordinary time, which is a season between, it's post-Advent, pre-Lent. So we've got these weeks between. We've been looking at the Psalms together as a church. And this week's ordinary time Psalm is Psalm 119. So why don't you turn there with me? Psalm 119, famous for being the longest chapter in the entire Bible, weighing in at 176 verses, which means that uh, today's sermon is going to be a bit longer than usual. So if you're taking notes, uh, my sermon will have 22 points. No, um, although there are 22 sections in Psalm 119, unfortunately this morning we're only going to be able to consider the first two, verses 1 through 16. But let's, uh, let's do look at the whole psalm for a minute before we dive into our specific text this morning. Um, perhaps the first thing that you notice is that the psalm is broken up into chunks, See them there on the page, and you might even recognize, if you look more closely, that each of those chunks has exactly eight verses. And if you were to count up those chunks, there's eight chunks, or there's 22 chunks at eight verses apiece, so eight times 22 equals 176. Very good class. I'm a math teacher during the week, so, you know. Uh, the next thing you might know, notice about uh, each of these chunks is that it has this weird word at the top that you don't know how to pronounce. All spread throughout. You see it there, the first section, Aleph, then Beit, Gimel, Dalit. We have Vav, Tet, Het, Yod, uh, Tzadeh, all these words. Those are actually names of Hebrew letters. Hebrew letters, okay? So not... To intentionally offend our KG only folks, KJV only folks, but the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, not English. You guys know that, right? Yeah. So, so what our editors or translators are indicating to us is that this Psalm 119 is actually an acrostic poem. So what's going on here, imagine if you were to open the page here and then you were to look down the verses of the page and every single verse the first eight verses started with the letter A. And then the next section, every verse started with the letter B. And then C. And then so on, all the way through every letter of the alphabet from A to Z. Well, if you were to open the Hebrew Bible, that's exactly what you would see running down the right side of the page. You'd see the first letter eight times. Aleph, 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 Aleph. Aleph, 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 Aleph. And then the next letter. And then the next, all the way to the very last one. Tav, 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 Tav. Tav, 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 Tav. Well, as we look more specifically at each of the verses, maybe one thing you'll notice is that every single verse in this psalm mentions 
God's word. All 176 verses mention the word of God. His commandments, his testimonies, his precepts, his ways, his words, his teaching, statutes, law, promises, truth, his rules. And so Psalm 119 is a 176 verse meditation on the goodness of God's word. The psalmist is showing us that we could exhaust all the letters in our alphabet. We could exhaust all the letters in the Hebrew alphabet and the Greek alphabet and the thousands of characters in the Chinese alphabet, whatever it is they use there. And we would still run out of letters to express the goodness of the Bible. Aleph to Tav, from Alpha to Omega, from A to Z, this word is supremely and unsurpassingly good. And that's the point of Psalm 119. So this morning we're going to look at the first two sections, the one labeled Aleph and the next one Bait. And from them we're just going to see two basic points about the goodness of God's word. Why is God's word good? Number one, the word teaches us to pray. The word teaches us to pray. And then secondly, we'll see the word guards us on our way. So the word teaches us to pray and the word guards us on our way. And for those reasons and so many more, God's word is good. Well, let me read to us the first 16 verses of this psalm together. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as, in much, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Point one this morning is drawn from that first section, and it's very simple. The Word teaches us to pray. Psalm 118 doesn't start with speaking about us, or about God, or even speaking to God. The psalm begins by casting a vision before us. Look again at verse 1. Blessed. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those 
who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Maybe you're familiar with this uh, superstition, but whenever you uh, are driving along the road and you happen to pass by a large flock of birds, my wife tells me you're supposed to say, my wedding. Has anyone heard that before? No? All right. Well, this is a new one, okay? So if you're not married, you're supposed to say, my wedding, the idea being that the number of birds you're seeing are going to be the number of people who attend your wedding. That's the hope, at least, right? Well, the first three verses of Psalm 119 are kind of like that. They're, they're, they're that kind of drive-by. They're meant to prime our hearts. We drive by the blessed. We see their lives. We see how blameless they are, how perfectly they keep God's testimonies, how their life is free from any stain or spot of sin. And we say, my life, my life, O oh Lord, that's what I want. And just like that, God's word has us praying. The word is good because the word teaches us to pray. In fact, verse 2, look at it again. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Couldn't we just rephrase that by saying, blessed are those who pray? Seek him with their whole heart. That's, that's just prayer. Blessed are those who pray. And when we hear that, it only makes us want to pray more. Because I want to be blessed more. When the word holds something up before us and it says, look, this is blessed. The word is saying to us, don't you want this? Don't you want to be like this? And it stirs our hearts to plead with the Lord, give that to me, Lord. Bless me. Put me on that way. I want to walk in blamelessness. I want to keep your testimonies. I want to seek you with my whole heart. I want to do no wrong. Bless me, Lord. May it be done to me. So without even giving us any exhortation or command or imperative, God's word simply in declaring a certain thing to be blessed is already teaching us to pray. Blessed are those who seek him with their whole heart. Blessed are those who pray. And the next, three ver next several verses, finishing out the section, are going to help us characterize what our prayer ought to look like. How are we to pray? Well, in verses 4 and 5, the word teaches us to pray in love. In love. Look at them in verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, oh that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So verses 4 and 5 form the very middle or the heart of this section here. And did you notice how they are a perfect mirror of each other? The first expresses God's desire. And the second, our desire. The pronouns up to verse 4 are you and your. And then we have a switch there in verse 5 to me and my. Well, God's desire in verse 4 is for his precepts. Quote, to be kept diligently. That's what he wants. That's what he has commanded. And what is our desire? Reflection, verse 5, that we may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. 
At least that's what our desire ought to be. Before we continue, I wonder whether you can read verse 5 and you can say, yeah, that's my heart. That's, that's my heart's cry. I, I wonder whether you can pray this with a sincere heart this morning. Does this put words to the indistinct cries of your heart? Verses 4 and 5 show us what ought to be our desire should mirror God's desire. Our heart's cry should be God's heart's cry. The word teaches us to pray in love, but so often our love is directed in the wrong places. We love wrongly and we love the wrong things. Our hearts need to be taught to desire God above all else. We desire toys, we desire money, we desire approval, we desire acceptance, respect, pleasure, all sorts of things. The problem is that we desire all these things apart from God or more than God. Our loves need to be renewed. And on top of that, maybe you do say, yeah, this is my heart's desire, and yet we see a disconnect between what we want to be true of our life and what is actually true of our life. Just because we want to do a certain thing doesn't mean that we actually do it. There's often this disconnect between the desire of our heart and the doing in our actual, actual life. Uh, do you guys remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, or just before then, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and then how does Peter respond to that? No way. No way. In fact, I quote, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Was Peter's desire in the wrong place? No. He wanted to die with Jesus, and yet when the moment of truth came, is that what he did? They all abandoned him. How often is that the case for you and I as well? We want to keep his commands. And we want to be people who keep his commands diligently. But we can't. So often we commiserate with the words of Paul who says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. And yet praise God that the distance between our desire and our doing is so perfectly captured by the first two words of verse 5. Oh, that. Oh, that. You see, the Christian is not the person who has closed the gap between desire and doing. The Christian is the one who sees that yawning gap between what God commands and what I actually do and says, Oh, that. Oh, that I kept your commandments. Oh, Lord who gave your life to have me. Oh, that my obedience equaled my love for you. Oh, that I knew how to walk in your ways. Oh, that you would just teach me, Lord. Oh, that my will would be perfectly consumed by yours and my path would become one of daily, diligently, only following Jesus. Oh, that. You see, before our way 
can mirror God's way, first, our heart must mirror His heart. The Word teaches us to pray in love. But the Word also teaches us to pray in hope. Notice how the verb tense shifts from verse 4, past tense, to verse 5, present, to verse 6 through 8, future. Let's look at verse 6 together. Listen to the confidence of hope in these words. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Psalm 119 is teaching us to pray in hope. The day is coming when the discrepancy between what we desire to be true of our life and what we actually do in our life will be completely collapsed. How can we pray like this? Because we believe, brothers and sisters, that God himself has bridged that gap in the person of Jesus Christ. That he has brought his way down from heaven to earth, walking among us. When we were wandering astray, Jesus Christ swung the path of God down to find us, to search us out, and to find wayward souls like you and me and say, come, follow me. And then he walked our path to its bitter end because the path that we had chosen was one that ended at a cross. When we had gone astray, Christ Jesus joined God's way to ours, walked in our stead to the cross so that we might walk with him out of the grave to the top of a mountain and into heaven back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. The Word teaches us to pray in hope. And finally, for Christ's sake, the Word teaches us to pray in great faith. Faith. Verse 8 seems to come out of nowhere, that last phrase, Do not utterly forsake me! But if verse 5 expresses our heart, Oh, that! <laughs> oh, that I would keep your statutes! And verse 8 expresses our hope, I will keep your statutes. Then the end of verse 8 shows us what is bridging the, ha the gap between our love and our hope. It's the object of our faith. Our way is not determined by our ability to guard ourselves. Our safe passage has nothing to do with our ability to keep God's word. It has everything to do with God's ability to keep us by his word. Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 119, if we are to have any hope of being more good in the future, it must mean that we have more of God. My life, my keeping of his statutes, any good found in me hangs on the all good one who hung on the cross for me. So my way today may be very long from perfectly and diligently keeping his statutes. But to uh, quote theologian Kendrick Lamar, 
if God got us, we're going to be all right. <laughs> the Word teaches us to pray in love, in hope, and in faith. Lord Jesus, do not utterly forsake me. Well, as we turn now to the second letter of the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet, the letter Bait, uh, we see our second point this morning. So not only does the Word teach us to pray, the Word also guards us on our way. The Word guards us on our way. Well, verse 9 begins with a question and an answer. Let's look at it together. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. We have that word way there. It actually appears frequently throughout Psalm 119. There are 18 different occurrences throughout this psalm of the words way or path. And for some reason, whenever I've heard this verse, whenever I hear the word way, I always think of like a, a little nature trail or, you know, like just a little jaunt stroll down the sidewalk. I don't know if that's what you envision. That's what I always think. Maybe because it's the young man, so you picture like a little six or seven-year-old boy, you know, on a little stroll through the woods. But the word way in verse 9 has more of a connotation of, of a pilgrimage, a, a highway, a long journey, a hard road that's traveled by wayfarers. So we might think of the young man not as embarking on a little stroll home from school, but a young man looking at the beginning of some epic journey, a quest. Or you might think of a young man as he's standing on his graduation stage and looking as the whole wide world is now opened up to him. Sounds a bit archaic to our ears to hear it spoken of this way, but down through history, Christians have often spoken of the Christian life as a pilgrimage. Medieval Christians in particular actually liked just going on literal pilgrimages. Um, maybe you know of the story of King Richard I, well, his, his uh, road to Jerusalem and back gave him the opportunity to earn his famous nickname, Richard the Lionhearted. Maybe you know the story of King Henry IV, who made a pilgrimage to, uh, through the Alpine winter, famously to go kneel at the foot of the Pope and beg for forgiveness in the snow. Medieval literature is filled with all kinds of heroes who seem to be always demonstrating their valor and their virtue on great quests like Roland, Sir Gawain, Dante. In fact, Dante, his uh, divine comedy, is one long pilgrimage through three different terrains, and he devoted an entire book to exploring the purification of the soul called Purgatorio. And that's really the idea of Psalm 119. The Christian life is a purgatory. It's a way that purifies us. But the question the psalmist asks is, how? How does that happen? How can a young man be pure in his wayfaring? Verse 2, uh, our second point comes in the answer. The word guards us on our way. And the word guards us, we see in this second section, in four different ways. First of all, the word guards us by teaching us the way. The word guards us by teaching us the way. Look at verses 10 through 12. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. We need to be taught the way. We need to learn the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We need to learn and be taught the story of the Exodus, Mount Sinai, the wilderness wandering, the conquest of the promised land, the kingdoms, the exile, the return, the advent of Christ, his death, resurrection, and ascension, the coming of the Spirit, and the explosion of the church and Christ's imminent return. We need to be taught the way. And praise God, the word guards us by doing that very thing. What has happened, what is happening in God's world, and what will happen. And as we encounter these teachings in God's word, it's guarding us from wandering. It's keeping us on the path. Moreover, we know not to lie, not to kill or commit adultery, to love our neighbors to honor our leaders, etc., etc., because God's word literally tells us and teaches us to do these things. But it's not enough to learn these teachings simply to pass some sort of exam. I bet many of us memorize Psalm 119.11 and VBS or Awanas. Anybody? Yeah? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. You notice that it doesn't say I've hidden your word in my head? I have hidden your word in my heart because that's where the sin springs from, our hearts. So life is a long journey where God is guarding us day by day by using his word to instruct our hearts and to reorder our love and to renew it. The Lord is not only teaching us his statutes in theory, but we experience the wisdom of his teaching as we obey his commands along the leg of life's journey we have to live. Secondly, the word also guards us by speaking about the way. So the word guards us by teaching us the way and also by speaking about the way. We see this in verse 13. With my lips... I declare all the rules of your mouth. So the goal, according to the psalmist, is that my lips would learn to perfectly speak according to what God has said. So we could think of the word as sort of being like a, a speech pathologist. Okay? Our tongues and our lips need to be taught to speak about God, about ourselves, and about his world using the same syllables and intonations, and words, and metaphors that God himself uses. So not only does the Bible literally tell us the truth, the Bible also provides us with the right metaphors, the right word pictures, the right ideas, the right theology for speaking about and to God. I could stand up here and say things like, Jesus is the Passover lamb, the Messiah, the lawgiver, the new Israel, the rock, the way, the truth, and the life. These things all have meaning because the word guards us by speaking about the way. We say that God is one and yet we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Why? Because God is teaching us how to speak about Him from His word. Why does it not make sense for us to speak about God as the Divine Mother 
or Jesus as the first creature, or the Spirit as an impersonal life force, because God never speaks about himself that way in his word. And the word is guarding us by speaking about our way. Guarding us from false belief, from false teachers, from any false notions you or I may come up with by speaking about the way. I mentioned Dante a minute ago. Uh, his work, The Divine Comedy, actually doesn't begin in purgatory. It begins in hell. And would you believe it? As he was going through the harrowing circles of hell, there was not a lot of time for him to think or talk about theology. You know, what with all the running away from monsters and three-headed dogs and uh, demons and trying to avoid uh, the, tar the boiling tar pits and the rivers of blood and all of that stuff. And meanwhile, you know, sliding down the side of a steep chasm. There just wasn't a lot of time along that leg of the journey to talk about theology. But when he and his guide Virgil make it to the gentle shores of Mount Purgatory, all of a sudden the journey slows down. And they're able to talk. And Dante begins to ask questions. And he begins to receive instruction about God. And his wrong-headed notions about who God is are beginning to gently change along the way. Well, that's what God is doing with us every time we open the word with one another. As we read his word, our heart's desire should be that we would speak in such a way that God speaks. That he would speak to us about our way. God, I just want to speak the way that you have spoken. I want to use your words to speak about you, to you, about myself and to others and about your cosmos. I want to enter into such pure dialogue with you, God, that what I say is simply what you have said. May my lips declare all the words of your mouth. The word guards us by speaking about our way. Well, thirdly, the word guards us by showing us the way. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Let's look there together. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. How can a young man keep his way pure? The question was. Well, verse 14 says, by delighting in the way of God. Verse 15, by fixing his eyes on God's ways. So one way the Bible guards us is by showing us the way, by showing us God's way. See what God has done, and then you go and do likewise. Does God feed the needy? You go and do likewise. Does God care for the oppressed, the poor, and the widow? You go and do likewise. Does God rescue the slave? You go and do likewise. Do you see him demonstrating loving kindness and forgiveness and mercy? Luke 6, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Showing us the way. Moreover, the word shows us our way in the example of Jesus Christ himself. After all, the summons of Jesus for every disciple is just two words. 
follow me. Follow me. We follow Jesus as he shows us the way. John 13, Jesus says, For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Go and read the Gospels, and whatever you find Jesus doing there, guess what? You go and do likewise. The Word is guarding you by showing you the way. Well, the Word also shows us the way in the faithful examples of heroes of the faith, and also bad examples through the villains in their faithlessness. The Word guards our way by showing us what temptation and victory look like in the lives of others. It shows us, for example, a picture of jealousy in the life of Cain, so that we will not go down the same path. And it shows us what it looks like to forgive your brothers in the life of Joseph, so that we too will walk in it. The Word guards us by showing us the way. Fourth and finally, the Word guards us by lighting the way. Lighting the way. Before we read this final verse in this section, let's look back at, at the first verse of the section, verse 9. How can it, this is the opening question. How can a young man keep his way pure? I skipped over that word pure, but the, that word actually has the idea of being bright or clean. It's sort of akin to our word like sparkling. Uh, the, root, the, the same root is used for the word glass. Okay, so the question is, how does a young man keep his way bright and clear? Verse 16, we see that the enlightened word has had its full effect. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And the word delight in some contexts also has the connotation of being blinded, having your eyes besmeared by something. Okay, so... What we might have the psalmist doing here is a sort of double entendre where we have delight and we also have this blinding that's going on. It's sort of like a Manfred Mann situation, you know, where he's been blinded by the light of the word. That's his delight. That's what he beholds. That's what he sees. The word has guarded him by lighting the way. When I first moved to Newberry 10 years ago, um, our church was talking about ways we could do outreach in the community, and we were having a little powwow, and there was a, a sweet elderly lady, and she recommended that I, she said, uh, you, you ought to go and preach at the Council on Aging. And I thought she was joking, because surely there's no, no organization literally called the Council on Aging. Um, but sure enough, there was a senior center in Newberry called the Council on Aging, and so for Eight years, I would go over there every month and preach to all the aging people. Um, and, uh, you know, one fun thing about it was it was the most integrated worship service I have ever preached at. And those people were so sweet, and they would, they would often begin the service by singing, which most of them could, couldn't even do anymore. But the ones that could would take their wheelchairs and kind of scoot up next to the piano, and they would try to make their way through a hymn. And there's one hymn in particular that I had never heard before moving to Newberry, but every time I hear it or I sing it, it reminds me of those elderly people, most of whom probably have already passed on to glory. Footprints of Jesus. Have you heard of that hymn? It's, it's, it's on the hokey side, okay? Um, but that's what makes... Some of the best hymns are the hokiest ones. 
It goes like this. Sweetly, Lord, have we heard thee calling, come, follow me. And we see where thy footprints falling lead us to thee. And then it has this chorus. Footprints of Jesus that make the pathway glow. We will follow the steps of Jesus where'er they go. There's something sweet about watching people who can't even walk anymore sing a hymn like that. But that's the truth. The Word Himself guards us by leaving those glowing footprints along the path. We are not trailblazers, brothers and sisters. We are following in the footprints of Jesus. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will. Do you hear that? You and I, we will. The final verse of the hymn concludes in this way. Then at last, when on high he sees us, our journey done, we will rest where the steps of Jesus end at his throne. That's where the way is leading us. That's where the light is coming from. This is our chief delight, the psalmist says. The Word Himself. The Word who has taught us to pray. The Word who has guarded us and will continue to guard us all along the way. And one day when we reach our journey's end, we will behold the Word made flesh and we will be blinded by His light. Well, what are we to do as we journey? I think Psalm 119 makes it pretty plain. We need to spend time in the Word because the Word is good. Open the Word. Read the Word. Hear the Word. Sing the Word. Speak it to one another with your friends, your family. If you know the Word is this good, how can you keep yourself away? Let the Word teach you to pray. Let it stir your heart to speak to your God in love, in hope, and in faith. Let the word guard you on your way. Hear Jesus teaching you the way, speaking about the way, showing you the way, and lighting the way to you. Turn from your wanderings and hear the word this morning. May our hearts praise God for his good word. Let's pray.